This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's best contenders for the industry's biggest awards. I'm Shana Naomi Crockmall, Digital Director at EW, and I am joined again by my co-host, EW's awardist columnist, David Canfield. Hey, Shana. Hi, David. And EW's Features Editor, Sarah Rodman. Hello. Hello. We are here post-Golden Globes, all a little scratchy-throated, a little <laughs> froggy. Um, this podcast is part of our comprehensive awards coverage in the magazine, online at EW.com. Uh, we're back now after the holidays and after this first actual award show. But before that, we had gone through a bunch of our final predictions. You got, and Mary Slosey from our team, David got to talk to Greta Gerwig about Little Women. Um, but this week, we're going we're gonna to talk about what happened at the Golden Globes on Sunday. The winners, losers, surprises, what it means for award season. We also have an amazing interview, David, that you did with Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins from 1917, which we will get to a little bit later well in the show. Well-timed. You have a time machine? You went back to 1917? <laughs> David is the time machine. David, well, that I film, I think, in its, of itself, it was the thing that we, 1917 was the movie that we had to sort of take the biggest leap with Definitely. In, in our prognosticating, because before we had even seen it, it was a question, David, of whether you would include it on some of the very early awardist predictions. Yeah. But then as soon as we saw it, I think we all were like, yep, that feels, that feels about right. felt very good about yeah. our choice. <laughs> Didn't feel like it had been that much of a leap at all, actually. No. It was just like, oh yeah, of course this is gonna be a major contender. So we will hear more from that. But thank you both for joining today. Let's talk about the Golden Globes. It was, it was a night of Globes, and you know this is sort of the first of a kind of abbreviated season. We're going to move through a bunch of award shows really fast over the next five weeks. Yeah. Um, but this one, the Golden Globes, was, you know, good. I thought our critic, Darren Franich, gave it an A as a show, which I, I was thought surprised. was generous. That me. I know. He, <laughs> I it's very well argued. You can check out his review at EW.com. He makes a good case for it, even though I'm not sure I would have given it an A. What grade would you have given, Sarah? I would have given it like a B minus okay. on like the show aspect. Sure. I think that if you separate out, yes, they made a lot of good choices that agreed with the choices that David and other prognosticators here at EW have made, which is good. But you don't grade the show on who they gave the awards to. You grade, yeah. grade the show on how good the show was. And I think that it's so interesting. It seemed almost as if Rick, someone had spoken to Ricky Gervais after the monologue because he was so sullen after the yeah. monologue. That Ricky Gervais, I felt like, did a really great job of arguing why there should not be hosts. <laughs> right? And, and like, I get that was his shtick, but I did not enjoy it personally. And mostly I was like, I don't need this. If this is what you're, if you're going to bring this like kind of sullen, sarcastic, like, why are we even here sort of game as a host, then I don't. The low yeah. energy, I think, is just, I mean, there were certainly moments in the monologue that I thought were funny. Mm -hmm. It's just his energy was so enervating. Like, it, I feel like it contributed to the show feeling draggy in ways that totally. it didn't have yeah. to, considering how lively and interesting some of the speeches were yeah. and how sort of great. But the, my thing also about the show in terms of the producing of the show was the weird way they formatted the actual awards themselves. Like they didn't really seem to go together. Everybody was giving out two. It was a big hurry. Here's limited actor, limited 
actor in a TV series and this one from a movie and the like it just score, yeah. yeah like it just didn't have any rhyme or reason to and it and not a lot of like flash no like, no performances no other well, they like always, which they don't always yeah they they I mean so sometimes many they have musical performances though they and, have sometimes and they had some big deal people nominated for music last night Elton John and Taylor Swift they and Beyonce Beyonce <laughs> and and yet I mean granted these were not big hit songs which they never are at this, but yeah, it was weird are. that there was no musical performance at all. And what do like, you think of the show? What would you And it was still be? 10 minutes over. Yes. I, I would also say, like, B minus, and exactly what Sarah said, it was strange that, like, Succession won Best Drama before Brian Cox won Best Actor, because normally the show yes. award would go past. Yeah. yeah. And it just contributes to the way the Globes always undermine TV, I feel. Absolutely. And put all the big film awards at the end, and the TV awards are just so randomly ordered for no particular reason. Um, I thought the Lifetime Achievement speeches were quite lovely, and particularly the intros. I thought Kate McKinnon's thought Kate McKinnon was speech for Ellen was so beautiful and heartfelt, uh, and I was very moved by that. She I so rarely speaks personally. Yeah, she especially about being almost never LGBTQ. talks about her sexuality, mm-hmm. and I thought that was a really lovely tribute. Totally. In, yeah. And Charlize's clear, actual fandom of Tom Hanks was quite lovely. Like, I mean, you think that they haven't made a movie together in since however then, 20 years. since that yeah. thing you do, in which I'm not even sure she had more than one or two lines. I did not remember her in <laughs> Well, she played the lead singer's girlfriend before he broke up with her uh. and got lead singer disease in that movie. But um, yeah, or no, he, she was Stretch's girlfriend. Okay. Tom Everett Scott's girlfriend before he started being in love with Liv Tyler. It's a whole thing. Go watch that thing you Go do. We have, a, we have a whole oral Go history. Find Charlize. <laughs> yeah, it's such a good movie. But anyway, she was lovely, and I think that contributed to him being so emotional yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And in general, the winners were not bad. I mean, mm-hmm. you can always... I, I didn't question more of their choices than I would the Emmys or the Oscars, mm-hmm. I thought. And sometimes with the Globes, you can have some real outliers that you're just like exactly. what are you talking about and then you have to remember again who it is that we're talking about <laughs> who voted on this how did it happen and it was a little more mainstream in line not super surprising yeah not a bad way right except although for not in an exciting way, way. which except was a missing link as surprise. animated feature which was definitely unexpected bizarre <laughs> i think the rammy win that people were saying was a, I mean, I think it was a surprise to a lot of people who haven't seen that show, but if you know the Hollywood Foreign Press and you've seen that show, mm-hmm. that is That's less well surprising. And it is a great show, so it is nice for them to throw some spotlight its way. Let's yeah, talk and the about Emmys s- didn't pay any attention to it. So. Yeah, let's talk some about the other TV wins, Sarah. So, Best Drama, Succession, Fleabag, Best Musical Comedy. What did you, did you think in the big categories those were the right calls? Absolutely, and I also, uh, this is, victory lap time for Fleabag, right? Like, oh this yeah, is this it. is She's, the end this is of that. Exactly, and so it was nice to see how funny she was and how grateful she was and how she's such a good example of somebody that spreads the wealth in her speeches, talking about by name, people, the director, and other people on the crew, and not sort of hogging all the credit to herself. And I think those were the two big shows. Also, also giving proper credit to Barack Obama. (laughs) Exactly. I appreciated that because while a very funny and very sort of dirty joke to make in the midst of that, even if it wasn't explicitly 
explicit and you had to kind of go back and know why is she making this joke about yeah. him, the joke that she made on the show, the joke that was made after he named Fleabag to his list of best television. <laughs> I, you know, she could have not done that and I appreciated that she went there. Totally. Well, I think that's like a microcosm of Fleabag, right? To- that 100%. Whole could exchange. you make a choice to make yourself look worse in this moment? Yes, do that. Exactly. Um, my, I think, though, honestly, my favorite thing about the TV winners last night was the way that Tiffany Haddish pronounced the name of the best limited series, a movie about one of the worst nuclear disasters in history. And when it won, she was like, Chernobyl! <laughs> and it, there was just something sort of delightful about she that. She was delightful. Yeah. You know that nobody has ever pronounced Chernobyl that way before. (laughs) Giddy enthusiasm. (laughs) Yay, Chernobyl. But excellent, excellent series, and you know, richly deserving. But just a nice, funny moment on the show. Also nice to see Michelle Williams. Yes, and hers gives a great speech. Always so composed and articulate, and really pointed. Like she came prepared, was ready to say something. (laughs) Did not want to let that moment go without saying something that really mattered to her. Yes. Did so really beautifully. So Michelle Williams and actually Phoebe Waller-Bridge, two people, and Chernobyl for that matter as well, I would like to point out as the president of the Television Critics <laughs> Association, we gave all three of those uh, things awards at the Beverly Hilton last July. So we were a little bit ahead of the Hollywood <laughs> well, That's for okay. Us. So they have all won those awards on that stage before. Um, and then not surprising that, I mean, the networks, the broadcast networks continue to be non-existence it is just not i mean it's lovely that michelle williams won that was like a big win for cable i was interested that russell crowe won for uh the loudest voice which was on showtime they don't often get a ton of Mm -hmm. awards love so that was uh, good news for them and really anytime olivia coleman does anything we should give her an award i feel like i couldn't believe they didn't give it to jennifer aniston though i was really surprised you were i love olivia coleman it's not it's not a quality argument i was just like the golden globes are going to give jennifer yeah no and it was like they didn't for jennifer aniston not for j-lo those were the kind of big missing jennifers of the night well, we'll get into in the, the, the J-Lo yeah. choice of Olivia Coleman, and you know, I think in that question of Fleabag's, Fleabag's final lap, but this is the beginning for Olivia Coleman, season three of The Crown right. and Succession, season right. two and like for the Emmys. First. And I think obviously we will see plenty yes, of both see of those more. casts going into the fall and the Emmys. And the fact that they also nominated Tobias Menzies, he didn't win, mm-hmm. but that is a very sort of Golden Globe thing to do it's a spread the wealth thing and you know brian cox winning i think he is somebody you know stalwart actor who has been around for so long who is not someone that uh, in that anthony hopkins generation that ne- doesn't necessarily win all the awards mm-hmm. so it's nice that this show has mm-hmm. brought him back in that, that was way. quite a moment actually when he won you could tell he he took it in yeah yeah. yeah. Olivia Coleman, I wonder if she benefited from kind of the reverse of what we were, I'm sure we'll talk about on the film side, which is I felt like the HBO, The Big Little Lies and The Morning Show all sort of competed against each other internally in some of those categories. And I feel like Olivia sort of got to be the differentiator 
in mm -hmm. that. Whereas on the film side, I think Netflix hurt themselves with having so many nominees in so many of those categories that that competition sort of played against them. But maybe it helped a little bit more on the yeah. TV side for Olivia anyway. Right. I mean, yes, with the movies, the two popes and Irishmen. I mean, yeah. there were so many options. And I, I mean, I think you're right about Jennifer Aniston in this regard, just because you know that she has got to be a favorite of that organization. And she gave a stunning performance on so that good. show. She's she great. is so good. Again, it's not a quality argument. Livia Coleman is fantastic. Yeah. But Jennifer Aniston really is does something special in the morning mm -hmm. show. Very movie starry too. Which yes. Yes. I loved that for. she said good morning when she stepped on stage. <laughs> and I couldn't decide if I thought that was a deliberate plug or a flub. But that like, moment, it was, it was like, yes, That sure. moment too when they read yes. Russell Crowe's speech felt like a scene from the yes, morning show. Yes, absolutely. And it was yes. right after Ricky Gervais had said, don't get up here and be political. Although I'm not <laughs> sure talking about wildfires and climate change is actually political. But yeah. I know that there are people that feel that it is. So the yes, timing exactly. of it was quite perfect. Yeah. Anything else on the TV award side, Sarah, that you want to say? We talked about last night a little bit about how Watchmen is missing, which we talked about when the nominations came out for this, that it felt like a, culturally a gap of a show that we all talked about, how important it was, and it was not reflected here at all. I think maybe, I assume we will see more for the Emmys to that point, I, I believe, think that window was just so short between yeah. when that show came out and... It just wasn't enough time, I don't think, because, I mean, there is the possibility that that show is a very American show. It is about American history, even though it, some of it is fictional mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. And it is about racism and white supremacy. It is a hard show on some level. And I think that it came out so close to the deadline and is so very American that I think that those are two things that could have gone And if you don't it. know enough about it, you think it's a superhero show. Exactly. And, and not, not it's a comic book yeah. show. Yeah. Is not, I mean, it has ties to comics, but but this is my chance to plug. Watchmen, watch Watchmen. If you think it's not for you, it is for you. But uh, yes, it will definitely be represented at the Emmys. I do think we should take this, as, as we transition to talking about film awards, I will take just one moment to um, congratulate ourselves at EW. I would say like we, uh, in, in the winners overall from last night, have had quite a number of these folks on our covers or in major coverage that we've done. Renee Zellweger, Aquafina, um, the cast of Succession, they were all entertainers of the year. We've also um, talked to Bong Joon-ho for this podcast, as well as Taryn Edgerton. Uh, we had Quentin Tarantino and the cast of Once Upon a Time of Hollywood do a long, long um, roundtable that you can watch on YouTube. Uh, the Crown was on the cover. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a good group of, I'm not saying we created these moments <laughs> for anyone, but- We've it, been watching. It, but, it, you know, I mean, I think it's always a balance. I think we are really concerned when we make these decisions for these high profile opportunities whether their covers or, or interviews or substantial things. We really spent yeah. a lot of time internally talking about not just the sort of star quality of who is, you know, uh, someone we'd like to honor in that way, either actually honor as an entertainer of the year or just feature, but also like the quality of what they're doing mm -hmm. really comes into play in what we're talking about. Um, so it was nice to kind of see that line up. Yeah, totally. We know how to pick them is what she's <laughs> saying. We know how to pick them. Thank you to Sarah Rodman for joining us to talk about the television of it all. She, as the president of the Television Critics Association, has to go get over to the beginning of that next press event. Um, never stops. Uh, never <laughs> stops. David, let's talk about 
films at the Golden Globes. Let's do you it. You wrote a great column um, that's up on EW.com, sort of breaking down for awardists what you thought were the biggest takeaways. Tell us what you think is most significant Mm -hmm. from what happened on Sunday. Well, I think the big takeaway, absolutely, is that 1917 is a serious Best Picture player. Um, the Golden Globes really cemented that, I think. Sam Mendes winning Best Director over just likelier winners, I think it was safe to say, like Martin Scorsese and Bong Joon-ho and Quentin Tarantino was a big moment because that movie just had a much later rollout as you mentioned and so it's barely come out it's, it's barely really it's just out. coming out this week it's, wide it's not wide yet yeah and it's screened for press and critics so late that in titan tightened awards season as this one is that can be really detrimental mm -hmm. uh but clearly the support is there uh the golden globes it's obviously a very small voting group they don't have overlap with the academy but uh in the week the days leading up to the golden globes there were sort of a slew of events uh, that I and other EWers went to, and this movie was being talked up a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's being watched, it's being loved, and it will be in that conversation, I think, to the end. So mm -hmm. that's the big overall takeaway, I think. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I think, I was thinking about this today, do you feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in a less controversial way sort of the Bohemian Rhapsody of this year, in that it is very popular, it had a huge box office, like people really watched it, people really liked it, it has so many big names attached to it, like people are familiar yeah. with it. It got mm, strong but mixed sort of critical takes, I yeah. think is fair to say, right? Not as strongly um, reviewed as Irishman or 1917 or Sure, so. but like has that familiarity and star power. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting way of looking at it. It, it sort of depends on how the season shakes out, but I think it's a stronger Best Picture player than Bohemian Rhapsody was overall. And I think it's, it's a better film. It's a better film, yeah. but also I think having the Quentin Tarantino factor, um, a director who has not gone all the way yet mm -hmm. uh, for a movie that feels like his most personal, uh, that's a really strong narrative that he's writing. And the Golden Globes like to sort of balance their role. They're very deliberate, I think, mm -hmm. in their choices. They like to be predictive mm -hmm. and they also like to advocate mm -hmm. and I think they liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I don't mean to say they didn't but that was definitely them pushing an Oscar frontrunner forward yeah um, because it's very possible those voters liked Rocket Man more they gave it two <laughs> Golden Globes uh, and I was thinking at the end I wonder if they'll do it and they didn't I had like a mo I, I mean look we all know I was pro Rocket Man yeah. I loved that movie I did not honestly expect Taron to win. I was quite delighted that he did, mm -hmm. but I think from a like the cold calculating part of my brain, I just thought this was probably going to go a different way. And then for some reason I woke up and I suddenly started thinking about how everyone I feel like is still really talking about Knives Out in a way that has been like in a social sense, but like that movie is just kind of continuing on. It's a great word of mouth. Everyone is like telling people to go see it. And I had this like brief moment where I was like, who doesn't love Daniel Craig? He's just gonna win this. I don't know why that was what I had convinced myself of Sunday morning. In general. It was a strange category. And I was like, something weird is gonna happen, but that'll be the weird part. Right. So I was pleasantly surprised for Taron to win. Um, but then, then I was like, but there's no way it's gonna win for <laughs> best musical or comedy, but who knows at this point. Right. Wasn't surprised that it didn't win that. No, nor was I, because they do, especially the last few years, they have serious up a bit. I think mm -hmm. they're, they're not as willing to make those loopy choices. Even, and I don't, even when it is when you're like, what is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood even doing in this category? Right. 
It's they, not really a comedy. Mary it's not a musical. Mary mentioned in our last episode Aquafina winning comedy actress for her dramatic breakthrough. It, yes. There's an irony there. Yes. Uh, Great also to see that win. Yes. Um, both Aquafina and Taryn, uh, we don't currently have them predicted to be nominated, but. Do you feel differently about either of those? I mean, both of those categories, the actor category in particular for the Oscars, very tight. Very tight. Even tighter, I think, than the actress one. Do oh, you totally. think that now that sort of questionable fifth slot that we've been kind of talking about mm -hmm. could go to Taron? I think it's possible. I think he's in it. Uh, I still think he will be edged out by a few people that we haven't really seen as much. Clearly, they didn't like The Irishman that much at mm -hmm. HFPA, which is probably why Robert De Niro was not nominated. Um, so he still has, I think, a better chance than some are looking at. But he and Aquafina, Taryn and Aquafina, absolutely are more in this than we thought. I also was really surprised to see there was a like Brooke Barnes's column in the New York Times last Friday, which was even more um, excited about Taryn than we have been. Yeah. It was just like this has been the perform like yeah. the biggest transformation, the big best performance. So it was like other people are really saying, "Hey, don't forget yeah. about this." Like think about this. If the, and and I think that question of this was really the biggest hurdle for it. If Rocketman could win in some substantial way yeah. at the Golden Globes, then it wasn't suddenly just out of contention. I think the problem is that voting is so accelerated yes. and it ends tomorrow. But yes, by the time you hear this podcast on Tuesday, Oscar voting will basically be closing. Mm -hmm. um, and, so it's a short window. And so there's not going to be much of a Globes bump, yeah. unfortunately. Um, however, him being nominated at SAG indicates that the industry is aware of this mm -hmm. performance. And what about for Aquafina? I think Aquafina not getting it at SAG was pretty tough mm -hmm. for her to overcome because Saoirse Ronan was also not nominated there, and I think she just has a better chance of making it all the way. Um, but again, the Farewell has been a consistent presence on the circuit. I think both that and Rocketman in very different ways have run really strong campaigns. Farewell mm -hmm. being a very small movie, mm -hmm. Rocketman being an earlier in the year, more commercial movie. Um, and so if either or both I loved them, that Taryn thanked the marketing team at Paramount. In you kind of have to. Which, I mean, they have done an outstanding job. Yeah. And they even like had a bigger Q&A this weekend clearly targeting Oscars yeah. with Elton John and Bernie Taupin and Taryn. Like, right. Have, you know, in advance of the, like too late for any sort of Globes contention, but like preceding that Oscars question. Yes, again. they have they have been on it for months, yeah. and uh, this was a very clear payoff. I think it's safe to say, yeah, not undeserved at all. And I don't think that they would have gone with Taron if it were a weirder choice. Yeah, but he's not someone you're going to argue yeah. with, especially because Adam Driver and Joaquin Phoenix, who are really your Oscar frontrunners, are on the drama side. Yeah. You don't have to worry about them. Also, I feel like in a year where there were a lot of, so many films based on true stories, getting to also have that double hit of Elton John and Bernie Taupin winning their first Golden Globe together for a song, and I think being very moment. likely, obviously, nominees for Best Song for the Oscars, mm -hmm. where they have won, or where Elton has won before. Correct. I think, is that weird extra validation of like, and yeah. he's sitting in the room and he also likes this movie, which I think goes a long way for people who have made, yeah. for especially when you're talking about academies and guilds where people have personally been in the experience of making movies about people who are alive yeah. and that not going well or being contentious in some way or being, you know, whatever. Right. It's an interesting, it was just an interesting dynamic that I, you don't get to see very often. Totally. It, it, it'll be interesting to see 
what that looks like depending on how many nominations it gets yeah. going forward because that was a really special moment when Elton and Bernie were on the stage yeah. together. So for Renee and Joaquin, as well as Brad, Pitt, and Laura Dern, the other acting winners. This was literally Oscar frontrunner, Oscar frontrunner, Oscar frontrunner, Oscar frontrunner. Joaquin is in a very tight race with Adam Driver, which is not over yet. And yeah. I've spoken to a few Academy members who are not high on Joker, so and do you feel like his speech would help or hurt? No, I don't think it helped. <laughs> it, was, it was, I was trying to decide. That was, I don't know why I just said that so diplomatically. I know, I, I, don't I, I was trying to gauge. I thought it was wild, and it was so in stark contrast to me to watching Michelle Williams give such a thoughtful, composed, articulate speech, and to me, in a really painful way, was like, this is everything about the difference between how Hollywood treats men and women. Mm -hmm. Laura Dern Joaquin, gave a great speech. Laura Dern, Patricia Arquette, Renee. Renee, all of them had such thoughtful things to say, and Joaquin gets up there and is like, sorry, I've kind of been a jerk. I kind of have learned some things from it, but I still can't figure out how to put together a sentence. And I'm not saying like, because you're an actor, you have to be a great public speaker, because I think clearly we know that is often not the case, yes. right? But it was, it was kind of like watching Peter Farrelly win for Best Director at the Globes last year and just like keep talking in that way where you were like, Well, he wasn't hurt by it. <laughs> he wasn't hurt. I think we thought he would be, and then he wasn't. So that is really my question is like, does this actually matter, or is it everyone's like, eh, this is about what we'd expect from Joaquin Phoenix? I think this is a worse example than Peter Farrelly, and also Joaquin Phoenix is more of a public figure. Mm -hmm. Voting for Green Book is not necessarily, because Peter Farrelly wasn't even nominated for Best Director last year yeah. for Green Book. However, Joaquin Phoenix is also in an interesting race because he is up against Adam Driver, who is not who the world's most personal human being. <laughs> Have we ever seen like an Adam Driver acceptance speech? Uh, he... I can't think of one. I can't think of, certainly not one that's high profile, and he will, I think he will win something between, between now SAG and, and yeah, yeah. I, I do think this is a tight race. I don't think Joaquin Phoenix is helped by this at all. I think it doesn't help that the movie's overall aesthetic, for mm -hmm. lack of a better word, is not uh, the most palatable. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on the actress side, you had Renee Zellweger, who really, just this very genuine, welcome mm -hmm. back moment for her mm -hmm. uh you could tell she was quite moved by that and i was moved by that yeah so i think yeah that was safe for her brad pitt kind of gave Pitt is just delightful and when like I, you were like he gets up there and you're like just keep talking like i what else can we give you some other awards yeah. like what you're do you want to host do you just want to hang out on There's stage a lot for a while of, he got a bit of a standing <laughs> ovation which i found kind I of curious and in my i was at the Golden Globes viewing party, and that was the only actor for whom there was a notable applause. Yeah. There was loud applause when yeah. he won. And his speech was sort of delightful in a very was, Brad Pitt way. It was funny, it was sweet. He had like some nice things to say about his buddy LDC yeah. and like, you know, the Titanic, and we were just like, oh, sure. The LDC. Yeah. <laughs> so I think Why not? he is very comfortably out front, as is Renee. And Laura Dern, I was quite sure that they were gonna give this one to J Lo, but thinking about it this again this is a very deliberate group yeah and i do think that laura dern was their their netflix vote yeah because she was the only film netflix win mm -hmm. and she is probably going to win the oscar i think um and there is that factor of like it's they only have one supporting category for actress at the globes right, and separate. she's you know solid in multiple films so there's a little mm. bit of that uh comedy well, i think that's why she's going all yeah. the way is she gives very different compelling performances in Little Women and Marriage Story. She's great. Yeah. We so I think Laura that's Dern. absolutely why she has been so comfortably out front 
for so long. Speaking of the kind of campaign speech factor of it, what about Tom Hanks? Mm -hmm. You know, his he he was so I thought really beautifully emotional in his speech in a really genuine yeah. way, um, and obviously has such an impressive body of work. Um, behind him for everyone in that room to recognize. Mm -hmm. Do you think his speech helped his Oscar bid? How serious, where do you see him right now for that race? So my co-predictor, Joey Nolfi and I have been a little nervous about Tom Hanks fitting into this final five because the movie has really fallen off of A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I think this was a big moment for him actually. And I think if anyone is changing or making their selections, I guess today is the last day, <laughs> I think it helps him. I really yeah. do. Well, um, it certainly didn't hurt him. I don't think anything in there was like a, wait, this guy? Like, what? No, no. it was such a great encompassing of yeah. his career moment. And he's in a category with like Joe Pesci, who's not going to these things. And he, he stands out as, mm -hmm. a, as a real... He plays the game, but not in a bad way. Right. It's such a, it's, it's a category that's so heavy on icons. Brad Pitt was like... Al Pacino and Joe Pesci, you know, yeah. it really is. There's a lot of Oscar winners who will be going against each other, to, to, no matter the combination. And I think Tom Hanks stands out as like, not to say that the others are bad guys, but like the good guy. Oh, totally. The one who has occupied yeah. that space in our culture. And I, you know, I think in that way that when people, when people talk about the Hollywood community, I always honestly roll my eyes a little bit because like, what does that mean? But it is a small company town in a lot of ways. Most of these people have worked together. Most of them have worked together in different ways, whether it was long ago or more recently, contentiously or yeah. harmoniously, right? And now that we've gotten past the Golden Globes, all of the rest of the nominations we're talking about are really peer group based and are really based on people's working relationships with each other in addition to their perception of, boy, I wish I could work with a Tom Hanks. That yeah. seems like a dream job, totally. right? And and I think that really comes into play as we get into more of the guilds and we get into then the Oscars and the way that that structure works. Yeah, definitely. He's just a great guy. And yeah. I think that could take it through. By the time you hear this podcast, uh, we'll have also gotten the Producers Guild and the Directors Guild nominations. Mm -hmm. And on Monday, we got the Writers Guild nominations. So let's talk about those briefly, right? Especially because sure. the screenplay race is pretty crowded on both the original side and totally. especially the adapted side. This is like the year of a thousand adaptations. Mm -hmm. So the nominees for original screenplay from the Writers Guild are Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson Cairns for 1917, Emily Halpern and Sarah Haskins and Susanna Fogel and Katie Silverman for Booksmart. Ryan Johnson for Knives Out, Noah Baumbach for Marriage Story, and Parasite by Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won. Surprises, thoughts? So the big story here is that The Two Popes, mm -hmm. which is sort of seen as a screenplay screenplay play, <laughs> uh, written by Anthony McCartan, who has been in the race many times. This is actually an ad adaptation, according to the Academy, of his own play, but the WGA classified it as original. Mm. And then they didn't nominate it. Oof. Which is actually quite significant yeah. for a movie that the Golden Globes really like, but otherwise has not found a lot of industry support. Yeah. Um, so that was a real surprise to me, especially with a movie like Booksmart, which I adore and I'm so happy to see it here. But to see that go over something like that is mm. is quite surprising. Although not, I'm not mad at that. I mean, no, I, like, not at all. No, like I thought Booksmart was great, and I love seeing those folks nominated here. But yeah, it is it is unusual, especially because yeah. that's the category confusion is always like the yeah. frustrating place. That not getting in is is a warning sign, and so is Bombshell uh, by Charles Randolph, who was sort of cruised through for the Big Short. 
a few years ago. This movie is such a question mark. It hasn't been a box office hit. It wasn't a critical hit. It was a big SAG Awards embrace. Mm -hmm. And I think that's partly because the- The performances, I think, are stronger than the script. And the actors are, you know, they're beloved. Yeah. So I do think that this one may not be going the distance outside of its actors. Uh, that was, Especially, again, the campaign for this has just been much more visible than for something like mm -hmm. Booksmart. So mm -hmm. for it to still not get in is, is not mm -hmm. a great time. And then on the other side, 1917, it's not necessarily a screenplay movie, so this is just another indication that the support is quite Oh, strong. yeah, that's a good point. All right, adapted screenplay. Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women. There are a couple of obvious ones not in here. Hustlers. Hustlers is I was big surprised one. and disappointed to not see Hustlers in here because I think that script is, is real tight mm -hmm. and is really smart. Yeah. Um, who else isn't in here who we might have been expecting? To be honest, that's to me, that's the five. And there were a handful who weren't eligible, right? Well, actually, on the original oh, side. Oh, that was on the original uh, side. The Farewell. Okay. Pain and Glory. Uh, those are the two big ones. It's going to be very difficult for, I think, any of these five to not continue on. Because what about where's Tarantino in here? Tarantino is ineligible. Good point. But it's Why? also original. He, I believe it's because he's not... The WGA has specific eligibility rules, and I don't think he's in the guild. Interesting. Or, or it's something along those lines. Okay. I'll have to confirm that. Okay. So, because that was the one, especially after the Globes win, I was surprised not but to But he has won list. Oscar Screenplay Awards. Sure. And was not nominated for the equivalent WGA Fair. for the same reason. So he'll definitely be in. Yeah. I mean, I think this list is, is very likely the list we will see for Adapted. Yeah. I was just disappointed that Hustlers, I don't know who I would have knocked out for Hustlers. Probably Joker, honestly. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I would have knocked out Joker. I think or most likely if there were one, I, I, I would currently predict that the two popes, which is going and adapted here, will probably beat out Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But Hustlers would be an alternate there. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Okay. Uh, any predictions for producers or directors, Guild? Um, we don't have to step on the toes of that since it's literally yes. going to happen within the next 24 hours. I do think... How much How much do these guild award matter? A so lot. Writers, producers, directors. Explain, walk us through why. The overlap just between them and the Academy is, is really significant. So a lot of the people voting for the DGA awards are the ones who are voting for the Academy awards. In the case of the DGA, it's quite rare for a DGA nominee to not for their, that film to not go on to get a Best Picture nomination. Mm -hmm. So expect the DGA five to figure into Best Picture, all five, mm -hmm. and maybe one will miss. And for director, I would say the DGA tends to lean, lean a little bit more commercial. Mm -hmm. um, so I think Todd Phillips is a pretty safe bet to show up there, but I'd say he's a much harder sell for the Oscars. Mm -hmm. um, you're in a really good spot if you get a DGA nomination. And then PGA2 tends to lean more bigger budget, commercial. This was hard to pull off. This was hard to pull yeah, off. Yeah, I feel exactly. like it's like the most like revered like ethic of like producers. But they've nominated, like, you know, they nominated yeah. Wonder Woman. They, yeah. they tend to yeah. go in the direction of, Difficult. good job, you made yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> you made a lot of money, it was hard to do, yeah. good job. So. Keep okay. that in mind as you look at their list and, and maybe the farewell, I, I would be quite surprised if it made it. That doesn't mean it's the end of its campaign. Oscar nominations are coming next Monday morning, Monday the 13th, bright and early. We'll be up. <laughs> we will be, you will have complete coverage on EW.com. Any 
beyond what we've already talked about, anything you want to say, David, about final nominations, predictions, the track you and Joey Nolfi on our team have continued to kind of closely track like all of the different wins and nominations and what that means for the chances of people to get an Oscar nom. That's on our site. But what else, anything else you want to leave us with? Well, you'll see our final predictions go up at the end of this week. Uh, we've been updating them quite regularly. <laughs> Any new debates? Uh, I would say Joey has been quite high on Jennifer Lopez winning this Oscar. And unfortunately, the Golden Globe loss is a yeah a real stake in that campaign. It's going to be tough for her to win at this point. Yeah, which is too bad. Too bad. Uh, she would have, I think she should have put up more of a, been able to put up more of a fight than uh, people are giving her credit for. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Bening and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case, and the stop-motion animated In the Know, from Mike Judge, Brandon Gardner, and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Trade. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. David, you spoke with 1917's director Sam Mendes and its cinematographer Roger Deakins, who may be the most famous living cinematographer or like among them in the business right now. Um, let we we both loved this film. Mm -hmm. I, many people are just now getting the opportunity to see it because it's only been open in limited release since Christmas and is only now this week opening wide across the country. It's one that I really recommended to almost everyone I knew. Um, yeah. It's much shorter and concise than I think people expect from a war film. It's actually like under two hours and feels mm -hmm. very real time um, and very compelling. It's violence is not, I did not think it was gratuitous. I thought it was really no. painfully real. We haven't seen a lot of film about the first world war um, and I think it's an interesting yeah. um, opportunity to explore that. Definitely. What did you think of, what else about the film? It's the sort of one take conceit of it uh, gives it a sort of immediacy that I've never really experienced in a war film. Sometimes it can feel a little gimmicky and I, I've seen people say that about this film and that's really surprised me because I just felt like it was such a clever and um, thoughtful way of immersing you mm -hmm. in sort of horrors because it really plays like a horror film at certain points particularly one section it's like both a both a road trip and a chase scene yeah sort of like without stopping which is and the performances are i mean i if anything i feel sort of bad that some of the performances i the feel like have gotten really lost in this so, race I mean, I like george mckay is, is great yeah and um all of all of those performances are really really compelling a lot of fun little cameos too which the I, best, I feel like this movie has the best list of like very big names who you see for approximately 90 seconds to maybe three minutes each, but who are so well used. Their dramatic chops are totally put to use, yeah. even though you see them very briefly. Yeah, uh, I don't want to spoil all of them, okay. but Andrew Scott gets a great scene and yeah. Sam uh, and Roger and I talked about that a little bit. So. All right, let's take a listen. Welcome back to EW's The Awardist. I'm David Canfield, and I'm joined now by Sam Mendez, director of the film 1917, and the cinematographer, Roger Deakins. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, quite a collaboration here, which we will talk at length about, but I wanted to start, Sam, with the sort of genesis of this movie. Uh, you're credited on the screenplay, which is actually a first for you. So I imagine being 
sort of the genesis of a movie for the first time was, was an interesting experience for you. Yeah, it makes you much more vulnerable, I have to say. Um, you know, I suppose it, it makes me realize that as a director, you know, when you send a script out to actors you, or to crew members, you feel like, you know, um, they're judging the work of a writer um, and whether they want to work with you. But when the writer is you, you feel very um, thin-skinned about it. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, you know, I was checking my email. I was going to send it to the actors or to Roger. I was checking my email every 10 minutes, see if they'd read it. You know, what do you think? So, um, but, but at the same time, it, it, it's also much more moving when it happens. You just think, wow, you know, a few months ago I was just writing this on a page and now everyone's here to make mm -hmm. this film. And that was really, I was I, on several unexpected occasions, very moving, um, that a story that really came from the stories my grandfather told me when he fought in the war um, between 1916 and 1918. He told me when I was a small child and he was in his 70s um, that, that, that telling those stories would have brought everyone together in this sort of uh, giant and slightly crazy endeavor. Mm. So the one take conceit of this film when did you know that you wanted Roger to be your partner in that? In that well, to be honest with you, I was thinking about it was uh, Roger when I was writing it, and and um, you know I suppose my one doubt I've never really said this to you before was that you know Roger is brilliant with storyboards and um, and also brilliant at judging combinations of shots. Hmm. You know, uh, if you think about the work he's done with Coen Brothers and what have you, I mean they're very heavily storyboarded, but you can really feel the kind of intelligence of the three of them, the, the, the Coen brothers and Roger, behind the, the way in which the images are put together. And having worked with him before, I was very aware of that. And I wondered if he would think he would miss that too much, you know hmm. what I mean? And, and that, that the sort of, and I knew also in my gut that he might think it was a gimmick. And, and, uh, and I didn't want him, I wanted him to understand that it wasn't. Um, but you know, I knew I would also have to justify it when, he, when I talked to him. How did you feel when you read it? Right? No, I, I mean, because well, Sam didn't say anything. He sent me the script, and right on the front page, it's like, this is envisioned in a single shot. And James, my wife, and I looked at each other. And thought, that must be a mistake. And then, and then I surely started, some mistake. And I, yeah, surely some mistake. Then I started reading it, and obviously, you soon get the sense it's a, a real time, and it's a, uh, you're following these two characters. And then it became quite clear having read the script, mm -hmm. so as soon as I started talking to Sam, then, you know, it was, it was a no-brainer why, why he was envisioning it that way. But, I, I, you know, I'm, I am somebody that I, I don't like gimmicks, I don't like trickery with a camera. I like the camera to be totally forgotten in a way when, mm. you, when you look at a movie. You know? uh, when I was watching it, I was struck by, and I don't mean this in a bad way at all, but I almost forgot periodically that it was a one-take movie because I felt so immersed in the story you guys were telling. Was that, would you say that was intentional, that kind of effect? Well, absolutely, wasn't it? We didn't want you to be aware of that. In fact, when I first, I saw the cut of the film, they had a cut of the film a week after we finished shooting, believe it or not, it's like amazing. And I wasn't aware, after you know, a few minutes, I forgotten about it as well. You know. I, I think we, that's working. Yeah, we were both agreed that we didn't want it to be self-advertising. I mean, I yeah. think that you, if you become aware of the camera, then you failed. You know, you want people thinking about the camera, you want people thinking yeah. about the people that the camera's pointing at yeah. and the places that it's looking at. You don't want them thinking about what it's doing. So it doesn't do anything, it doesn't showboat, you know, it doesn't go through 
you know, a, a, a keyhole or, mm. or, or follow a moving bullet or, um, you know, pass through a wall. I mean, it, it doesn't defy the, law, the, the laws of physics, but it does move in a way that sometimes makes you very aware of the characters small on a huge landscape or gets very, very intimate with them. And, and sometimes it shows you what they can see and sometimes in a key way it doesn't. Um, sometimes it operates almost like a horror movie and it won't show you what's mm -hmm. up ahead and at other times um, you know you're very aware of uh, the world that they're part of and the scale of the destruction and the landscape it's like mm -hmm. looking through a tiny keyhole on a, on a vast expanse and and uh, but the choice to do it was about connecting the audience to the characters emotionally not um, going through some sort of a style exercise. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes about making sure that the movie can breathe in and breathe out and that the choices of when the camera moves uh, are not um, uh, spurious or, or, or ostentatious in any way. And, um, and that just meant a lot of me and Roger sitting around talking um, and storyboarding and trying things out and storyboarding again and often the same sequences over and over again until we found the right way to do it. I think it was interesting. I mean, we were trying to make it immersive, right? You're yeah. using the technique to get the audience completely with the characters and in, in their experience of the world. But I'm not sure if it was you or somebody said uh, earlier today, um, it brought a certain claustrophobia to it. Hmm. And I think that was really good, especially in the trenches. You know, you really, there's no way out. You're not giving the audience a, a, a wide shot over here so they can right. relax for a minute. You're stuck with these characters in the world they're in. Hmm. So how long and for how long and how often, I guess, did you guys discuss the movie and the, and the challenges of avoiding gimmickry and things like that in advance of filming? And particularly, were there any sort of difficulties in, in figuring it out, uh, any specifics? Yeah, there were, there were difficulties with every scene. Um, but one thing we talked about very early on was let's talk about where, let's not think about engineering. Let's think, not think about mm -hmm. mechanics mm -hmm. yet. Let's not think about the how, but the why. You know, why, why is the camera there? Why, what do we want to see? At what point do we want to hand off from one camera to, uh, character to the other? At what point do we want to see what they're seeing? At what point do we want to introduce details? We want to see where their feet are or their hand is or where they're looking. You know, and they were all choices based on character and story. And then once we'd worked that out and we were pretty solid, then we had to work out how to do it. And, and then that became about engineering. Then it became about which rig we shot on, whether we were on a wire, a crane, a handheld, uh, you know, uh, the, the stabilizer, which is a, a you know, stabilized system or, or a steady cam or a, um, uh, the Trinity, which is the largest steady cam rig. And those decisions were rehearsed too. We rehearsed those shots and see if it was the right rig. And sometimes we changed quite close to the, the moment. But they were all rooted in a, in a physical reason, a physical and emotional reason to do with the actors, rather than, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we went over here? You know? mm -hmm. um, and and uh, gradually you begin to develop a style. And like Roger said, you know, really the big moment of sort of determining what our style was is when the characters leave the trenches and cross no man's land mm -hmm. because you have no physical structure around you to dictate where the camera has to move. Mm -hmm. It can literally move anywhere. And, and so you then have to make a determination about what the correct style is. And that helped us then really develop the style for the rest of the movie. Hmm. What about you, Roger? Was there anything? Yeah, and also the moments that you took in that where you want to emphasize 
one character yeah. against the other. You know, so how do you segue from one character to the other? And that's like a little dance of the, the two actors and the camera and, and the, where the set pieces are and everything else. So in a way, it was a really interesting process because often when you're cutting, you say, I want this sort of set and you work with a designer and the set comes in and then you imagine certain shots but when you see the set and the actors block it out then it might change and you adapt it and you go oh well it would be nice to play it in a single shot here whatever but that wasn't the case in this we had to work it out in advance of the sets being built the sets had to be built very specifically for the action sam had written uh, and the time it was going to take for the actors to speak the lines yeah. or for a certain piece of action to take place yeah. in a certain moment. We yeah. actually had two scripts. We had a script mm. that you would call a conventional screenplay, but we also had a, a script that was made up entirely of schematics. It was about 40 pages of maps, and on every map was a diagram of where the actors were moving, specifically, and where the camera was moving. <laughs> and I think it's fair to say of the four or five movies, I can't remember how many Roger and I made together, we've made, cool. this is the one that we changed the least on the day. I mean, yeah. you know, what Roger says is that conventionally you go on and you actually see some more interesting shots. But this is the one we, we'd rehearsed it so much and thought about it so much that we actually, now that's not to say there weren't lots of happy accidents, which there were when we were, you know, because these are long takes and all sorts of weird things happen right. when you, you can't plan them. But what the camera was doing very rarely changed from what we had rehearsed. And you were working on a pretty tight schedule, correct? You started yeah. filming in April, yeah, <laughs> which yeah, I yeah. cannot believe. Yeah, no, it's it was. Well, that made the prep even more uh, crucial, you know. And then with, you know, obviously one of the one of the big problems or problem, one of the big uh, unknowns was the weather. We mm. needed to shoot it in in cloud or the exteriors, and uh, so we really needed to have our you know, shots worked out, the equipment worked out, we needed to rehearse it with the actors, we needed the operators or the grips or myself to have done the shot a number of times before we actually came to do it, the real take where it's the real performance. Because some days we're waiting for that one little cloud that's slowly coming from the horizon <laughs> and it might take hours and I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, yeah. And when it damn well got in front of the sun, we had to shoot and get it right. So the pressure there was kind of quite, yeah. So I found it quite enormous. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> well, I think I that don't want to do it again. No, 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 it's all coming back now. It's like you're it's getting it. post-traumatic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I imagine though that having made several films together was essential to pulling something like this off and having that familiarity with the way you work with one another. I think it's knowing that you know you're sort of if one or other of you doesn't like something the other one doesn't get offended and you just keep yeah. going until you find the solution i think that's that's what you have with this sort of existing relationship and also sometimes when you shoot and you get the shot you you literally just look at each other and nod yeah. and you and you know you've got it i mean it's an instinct you know on some of the best days we had on this movie we barely spoke because you're so focused on and you I, know I exactly what i won't take that personal <laughs> <laughs> He wouldn't come out of his van, what can I say? Um, <laughs> but you know, you, 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 you're sort of so in sync and you so know what you're looking for. And that, you know, when you get it, you're just, uh, you, you don't even have to say it. Yeah. And I think that, that's what comes from working together before. And also we've done movies of different styles. Very you know? different, yeah. yeah. I mean, the first film we did together, Jarhead, uh, Jarhead, I think was most akin to this film. To although that movie. was all, not because it was a war movie, 
it was, and it was very different the way we shot it because we shot all that handheld and we shot rehearsals. We didn't rehearse, we just shot. Mm -hmm. But our relationship to yeah. where the camera was and the actors and the relation to how we built those shots together, uh, I think that informed a lot of what we did on, on, and the on fluid, this film. And the fluidity yeah. of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the sense that within this sort of constantly moving shot was, was something quite precise. You know, that, that combination of, I mean, what does James Brown say? Um, keep it loose, but keep it tight. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, that, you know, you're sort of planning it, but at the same time, you're freeing the mm -hmm. actors mm -hmm. to, to feel like they're, they're free to do whatever they want. And, um, and so it's that combination of, of, of structure and freedom that you're searching for. Um, and, and that's not unfamiliar to me from the theatre as well, you know, when you're, you yeah. know, I'm not unused to saying to actors, right, you know, we've, we've been rehearsing this for weeks, off you go, it's yours now. You, you take it, they're your characters, you know, it's your scene. And then just watch what happens. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about the various details in the script, and particularly some that struck me as pretty remarkably specific. I imagine the conversations that you had with your grandfather, you learned a lot, and, and there are, it seemed like there were some details probably that stuck with you that made it into the movie. Were there any, without, I guess, spoiling anything, true details that found their way into this movie? Well, I think it's fair to say that pretty much every detail in the movie has some basis in reality. I mean, we mm -hmm. read, Christy Wilson-Cairns and I, who co-wrote the script with me, read an enormous amount of first-person accounts of the war and a lot of um, wonderful archives in the, in the Imperial War Museum. Um, and a lot of collections of first-person accounts, rather than historical accounts. You know, it was more about the experience of the war than than the reality of the war, not historical details. So, for example, at the moment, there's a soldier who sings song in, a song in the woods to a, another group of soldiers. He, Schofield stumbles across, and that's based on a real account of a man st stumbling into a woods and uh, uh, observing a soldier playing a Debussy nocturne on a stolen piano wow. to his fellow soldiers. And the way he described it and said, you know, this is, I, had, I hadn't heard music for two years and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. Uh, it moved me a lot and, and that obviously registered and became that scene. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, my, my grandfather carried messages and so obviously this is a movie about a man who carries a message. So, so the, they went in in a kind of, the spirit of them went in rather than individual details. A lot of the details, specific details, um, are from first-person accounts and, and are widely known. You know, the, the, the life of the rats in the trenches and, and uh, the crows and, you know, the wildlife, that, that's something that there are a lot of men talk about, that they were living with animals all the time, sometimes unwanted uh, visitors to the trenches and to, the, and to no man's land. Um, the, the plane crashing into the barn, that, that's based on a real story. You know, wow. all these things. Uh, and you mentioned the animals, there's that really amazing moment when he just stumbles upon that pail of milk and it, it feeds into a later scene and I found that uh, really surprisingly moving and the singing scene as well, it's, it's very quiet almost. Yeah. Um, Roger, for you, getting the look of this film broadly, what kind of research did you do and what, you know, you've done war films before, what was the broad sort of visual look communication that you wanted to execute well, not really. I mean, the, 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 it's not that specific. I mean, I'm just trying to create something that feels totally real, you mm. know, immersive and real, both with the camera and with the lighting. So um, obviously the challenge is the camera's seeing 360 degrees when you go into a bunker. 
So, you know, the first bunker we go and it's lit by with oil lamps. And I think Sam was surprised I didn't put any lights up and it's only just these two oil lamps. But <laughs> those oil lamps, we spent a couple of weeks actually figuring out how we were going to light where they were going to be, the kind of bulb we put in them because it's not a real flame. It's all on dimmers. So when the camera comes round, the, the balance of the light changes with dimmers and all that. So even the little things, there was a lot of detail to it. But um, it had to, the, the, the essence of it, it had to look real. Um, the, the scene with the, in the German bunker with the two flashlights, I mean, they're not just off-the-shelf flashlights. <laughs> they're period flashlights, yeah. but they, you know... They throw a light a, that's perhaps yeah, a little greater than the yeah, real one. a little bit. But, no. but, you know, we did talk, though, about the fact that, you know, I think the movie kind of... Um, goes headlong early on into the things you expect from a First World War movie, mm -hmm. to trenches and yeah. as and mud. But after that, it moves through atmospheres and looks that you don't expect. Tunnels mm. and yeah. quarries and chalk trenches and orchards and farmhouses and canals and destroyed towns. You know, the atmosphere and the times of day change. The atmospheres and the light shifts from place to place to place. And, and it's very, in that respect, it's, it's deliberately... Um, you know, changing and morphing the mm. whole time. Well, it's deliberately surreal when we get to the, the destroyed town. I yeah. mean, that, that mm -hmm. was very specifically meant to, you know, feel like a, a dream stroke nightmare, yeah. you know, yes. more like a noirish kind of look, you know. Yeah. So it's, but yeah, yeah, definitely. He wakes up and you have no idea <laughs> right, where he right, is right, or what's right. going on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, you have several great, well known actors and very small roles, uh, I think it's safe to say, but they make, I think they leave an impact. What were the logistics, given the sort of unusual shooting schedule and uh, mechanics of this film, of getting them in these scenes, figuring out their <laughs> parts? I, I bribed mean, them. <laughs> someone, someone like Andrew Scott, who has such a great, yeah. makes such a great impact in such a short amount of time. Yeah, I agree, he's wonderful. They're all wonderful. I mean, I think that it helped that I'd, I'd worked a lot with all of these people, either on stage or on film, or sometimes both. In the case of Andrew, I've worked him on stage and on film before. And, um, and I think it helped that they felt they were part of something that was different. And they weren't carrying the weight of this movie on their shoulders. They weren't being asked to go around the world and do a press junket. They, were, <laughs> they weren't being asked to do anything except just be good in those scenes for a couple of days. And um, it was very... Um, moving to me that they, that they said yes, because you know, they're busy people, as you say. Uh, but they all came fully prepared, and, and the feeling that I wanted, which is that these two relatively ordinary soldiers are passing through these lives that in many ways are more, are bigger than theirs, you know, and have a huge amount of, uh, that these people have a huge amount of authority, and yet we only see them in passing. Mm. You know, that, that was something that really appealed to me, and I think that they, they um, they all got that and, and turned up, you know, um, ready to go. Mm. Did you have any concerns about the first moment you see them? Because obviously this is such an immersive movie and neither George nor Dean Charles are as well known. In the screening I was in, um, I guess I won't say who appears, but someone appears and there, was, there were a few cheers actually <laughs> that I heard. Uh, did you want to make sure that it still felt grounded and that they were immediately a part of this world? Are there any choices you made there to make sure that happened? Well, I suppose I, I was choosing two actors who were lesser known 
mm -hmm. um, and relatively speaking new to the game uh, because I wanted the audience to have an, a sort of new relationship with them and for them to feel like they were just two amongst thousands and thousands of men. Um, but I also wanted the people they met to have gravitas and experience and, and charisma, you know, um, in many cases. Uh, and funnily enough, the first shot of the movie, I, I, it was the one that I thought about almost the most because I, I needed it to feel... So once they've got the mission, you know what the, their purpose is and you sort of know that they're going to try and get there as fast as they can. Yeah. But the first two or three minutes, they're just talking and you want them to walk in silence and talk and talk about nothing particularly and yet gradually, subtly reveal themselves. And it was a difficult scene to write and to shoot um, and to establish gradually that this was the style in which we were making the movie. So it was a delicate balance, that one. Mm. I love the way that the, the walking and talking scenes are filmed and there's a, there's a real intimacy to them. Can you talk about your approach to the naturalism between those actors and capturing that on camera? Um, well, I mean, uh, well, in a technical sense, because it depended on how fast they were going in the terrain <laughs> they were going over to what piece of equipment we used and then and how the shot developed, you know. And, and as Sam said earlier, I mean, we broke it down mainly for performance reasons and then secondly, really for location reasons and then thirdly for technical reasons sometimes i would say well you know charlie resick who was working with the trinity which is quite a big beast yes i mean it's incredible delicate and it's amazing what he can do but he could not walk half a mile and do 30 takes of it you know what right. i mean you have to have some sort of limitation if that's <laughs> the piece of equipment you have to use so um you know so each each particular piece of walking was done in a different way you know yeah. Um, Sam, it's the 20th anniversary of your first film, American Beauty. Uh, and we, we are the awardist podcast, and of course that was an award-winning film. Um, it's a big question, but in, in the 20 years since you made the movie, how do you think you've evolved as a director? Oh, much worse. <laughs> gone backwards, haven't I? Um, <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> I wish I could ask Connie. Oh, he definitely agreed with you. He looks genuinely curious. <laughs> he definitely <laughs> agreed with you. Um, Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, you know, I think one thing I've done over those 20 years, I hope I've done, is I've treated each movie differently, and it's its own particular adventure. You know, I've never in, uh, applied a single style to consistent pieces of, to pieces of material. I always think, well, what style does this piece demand? And so, you know, I've... I've as Roger said earlier, we, Roger and I shot a handheld movie. We didn't storyboard it for a second. We barely planned it in a way. We did go to the locations. Mm. And we shot, we shot two cameras handheld and we, we let it kind of fly, really. And this movie couldn't be more different. Um, but I, I do think I've learned to use and bring some of the things I've learned from the theater into movies. And I certainly did on this one. And, um, and, and it took me a while to come back to England to make movies. I made my first four or five movies in America. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I think that perhaps I bring more of myself to this film than I have before. Um, and that takes a certain amount of courage, which perhaps 20 years ago I might not have had. Hmm. Is there a moment, I guess, from American Beauty that you reflect on as particularly you're particularly proud of a shot. I think the, the rose petal shot on Minas Suvari is such a famous shot. It's yes, analyzed to death uh, still. Yeah, I, I, I um, 
But you see, I think of that shot, and I think of me in Comrade Hall up a stepladder, sprinkling rose petals while shooting 120 <laughs> frames a second and then running the film backwards. Because yeah, yeah, that's yeah, actually yeah. what it is, wow. you know. It yeah. could not have been more in camera, yeah. more, you know, a uh, uh, poor man's process than it was, you know, that, that look, and it, it looked so beautiful when you, when you did it, played it, you know, backwards and, and uh, uh, but uh, for me, the, um, I suppose, one of the things that I, I feel proudest of in that movie was, was um, how courageous I was to hold shots for a long time. Hmm. And I think it's taken me 20 years, perhaps, to get back to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> well, Roger Sam's description of um, the background of filming that American Beauty scene has me uh, inevitably asking, is there a day on the set of 1917 that you think you'll remember is particularly arduous. I want to know how he shot the bowling scene in Big Lebowski. Oh, the bowling scene <laughs> in Big that, Lebowski. Yeah, there yeah, too. Okay. I think that's much more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, like a, that was a spit on a dolly. So we're pushing the dolly and the camera's on the end of like a spit, literally. Oh, really? That's and hilarious. A revolver was spit, that. so the camera's going like 360 and the dolly's going down beside the that's bowling alley. <laughs> Yeah, I never knew that. Yeah, so I, I never knew that, really. You know, all those things. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, what was particularly arduous? If there was, you know, he mentioned sort of the, the memory of that scene. If there's, you think that there's... No, I think every scene, you know, like Sam was saying, I think that my best memory of it all is just, you know, when, when everybody felt they got a take and you just, you know, we'd each walk out from where our controls were and go, Wow, that was yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, you could feel electricity yeah. that, that when, you know, it's very unusual for the whole crew to be united. Or you know, uh, but because they were mm. all focused all day off and two days on yeah. one shot, just one, not coverage, not multiple takes of the same thing. I mean, multiple takes of the same shot, but not mm. multiple angles on the same mm -hmm. thing. Um, when they achieved it, it felt mm. special and exciting, and. Um, there was, a, there was enormous pressure on every, every take, every section, because they were so long and so involved. And the further that went into the take, the more kind of anxiety I was feeling, whether I would get it right or the, you know, the sun would come out at the wrong moment or whatever, you know what I mean? So, so yeah, yeah, I remember those things. Yeah. Well, I think in the end, you guys made something pretty special. So. Uh... Thank you very much. Congrats, thank and you. thank you so much for joining us Thank today. you. It was fun. David, thank you so much for having that conversation with Sam and Roger. We also, if you have now seen 1917, or as soon as you do see it, if you'd like to see a longer conversation with them and some of the cast, we shot a roundtable that you can watch on Entertainment Weekly's YouTube, uh, which was also great, and you get to hear a little bit more from the actors yeah. in that also. Um, Such lots. a great, tight-knit little group there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you want to give a last, bold, not a last, but before the nominations, David, a last bold take? Sort of a last bold take yeah. for, for this phase anyway. Sure. Um, yes, I think you mentioned a little bit, and Joey may disagree with me, so it may not be reflected in our predictions, but I think Knives Out will be a Best Picture nominee. Okay. Uh, I'm sort of looking at that list right now as I feel like there are eight that are pretty secure, uh, or not pretty secure, but the eight that I would predict. 
Uh, and then there's that ninth, if they go with a ninth, and I've just, I've been going back and forth with about six different movies. What are the other ones? Oh, uh, everything from, well, this is giving away that I'm not predicting them, but everything from The Farewell to Bombshell, which was a big SAG movie, to Richard Jewell, if, if that contingent of the Academy really shows up, uh, and a couple others. But Knives Out has a momentum that none of those others can touch. It's getting great word of mouth. People are really talking about it. I watched it for the third time on New Year's Eve. It just seems like a solid, like, staying at home at New Year's Eve. Like, one of our friends who came over hadn't seen it. I felt like this would be fun. And there were things still that I saw in it the third time around that I had not seen the first two times and thoroughly enjoyed. It was just enjoyable and smart. I feel like it's possible that the the team behind this movie underestimated its awards potential a little bit. Because if you really look at the quality of the reviews, the cast, the box office, and the word of mouth, it, it kind of should seem like a slam dunk, and yeah. it's not, and I just think it, it hasn't been pushed in that direction. Well, I want to give a serious shout out to the social team behind Knives oh, Out, yeah. because they have been really killing it. They posted, right after the Golden Globes, a very funny version of the Jamie Lee Curtis line, which is also in the trailer, about how am I feeling after the loss of my father, <laughs> uh, only with Golden Globes yeah, in it. Their jokes about Chris Evans have been A-plus throughout. I don't know oh. if this is like their social campaign is their campaign, but <laughs> they've been nailing it. Yeah. That's a, that is a really solid, bold take. Okay, my bold take, one last before the Oscars are announced. Look, I'm just going to keep going with my manifestation theme, and I'm going to say Taron gets that fifth so actor far. slot. I mean, why not? Like, they, he's he seems to be respected by his peers for the work that he's done. I think, obviously, you can sort of never quite overestimate the goodwill for an icon like Elton John and the factor that that plays. I mean, this is the man who has a 50-year career and has delighted people in so many different ways, and this is kind of a new world, but I think... I think every filmmaker likes to think that they could make a great film about someone who has influenced them that they would love that much, but it almost never happens yeah. while they're alive. And I think there's like a little bit of that that's going to bleed over into all of it. So yeah. I'll put that out there. He's right there for sure. Yeah. Uh, all right. We have still more great interviews to come on The Awardist in these remaining weeks. Um, you spoke to, we have Tom Hanks. Um, along with director Marielle Heller, Thomas and McKenzie, and others. So be sure you have subscribed to The Awardist. Um, be sure to like, rate, share, all of those good things. Um, you can always find complete Awardist coverage at ew.com awardist and in the magazine. Um, we'll be back to talk about the Oscar nominations next week. After that happens, bright and early. David, thank you so much for joining me, as always, for, for being me. out there in the weeds of, <laughs> of all the parties and the viewing parties and the many different awards lists as they I know come Beverly through. has very well now. <laughs> uh, thank you to Sarah Rodman for joining us today to talk TV. Um, and thanks, as always, to all of you for joining us for The Awardist from EW. Mm-hmm.